Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, my fellow travelers. Thanks for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you'd like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash morning sun underscore fellow traveler or click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you and safe traveling. Hello, everybody. We're back again for round two on Pi Day. Um, today, yeah, today's 3.14 in case you, if you didn't know, um, it is Pi Day. And here we are riding the circle with uh brady hornstra did i say that right uh hornstra yeah hornstra brady hornstra how you doing brady doing well how about yourself i'm doing well yeah i'm uh had a nice snow day today where where are you located uh i am located uh just outside of kansas city right now oh okay wow kansas city where is kansas city uh, it's on the border of uh, Kansas and Missouri. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> I figured it was in Kansas, but <laughs> I, yeah. I had a feeling like there was a there was a Kansas City that wasn't in in Kansas. But you know how much, how little I know of geography. I mean, he's coast most, guy. Most of, most of it is actually in Missouri, um, but I'm just on the Kansas side. Oh, okay. So you're saying the city is half and half? Uh, I mean... There's a little bit more of it on the Missouri side, so it's not quite half and half, but okay. pretty close, yeah. Oh, really? So it, it kind of spans two states? One yep. one city? Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, I know very little about um, the United States where I live, like geography-wise. I mean, enough to get by, but especially the southern states, I really want to explore more. I have a lot of friends now who are from Atlanta, uh, like Atlanta, Georgia, and Tennessee, and <clears throat> I know people in Minnesota, and not so yeah anyway um the reason i'm chatting with you is because the world of the internet these days you know um you get connected and you you come across people who i don't know create all sorts of all sorts of um uh what's to say content i guess and and one for you you have a page called the christian universalist and it's become pretty popular did you ever think you would get that popular? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Wait, let me see how many followers I have. I, don't I guess you don't have. I guess it's not as big as you thought. I think in in this sector of the the uh, internet, I guess it is. <clears throat> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, uh, almost a thousand. I didn't yeah, think I had that many. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, you post a lot of cool stuff and a lot of cool content. Um, we've kind of interacted with each other over the past few months, and I was like, figured I'd invite you on just to hear your story. Um, and basically, the way that my starting point for these conversations is um, the topic of spiritual heritage. Where do you find your spiritual roots, and um, how have you grown since then? You know, so mm -hmm. I mean, you can start from wherever you'd like, share as, as little as or as much as you'd like to, but. Um, also, I'm really interested in people's experiences too, whether mystical or mundane. What kind of experiences did you have um, that have kind of kept you in the faith or caused you to change your faith in such a way that that um, I think in this case, like when it comes to <clears throat> why people become universalist or kind of even hopeful universalism um, has a lot to do with um, having a more beautiful picture of God, right? And a more hopeful view of the future. Because in this really dark, scary world full of a lot of suffering and fear and doubt, it's nice to have a little some hope, you know, especially with something so central to us as faith that um, it's the foundation upon which we build our lives. So yeah, to have a hopeful foundation is would be better, you know? But um, yeah. You can start wherever you'd like to. All right. Uh, so I I grew up in Washington State, uh, north of Seattle a little bit. Um, grew up in a, a non-denominational, um, more of like a Baptist-leaning non-denominational rather than, than like a Pentecostal or charismatic-leaning non-denominational. Um, I mean, it was it was fairly conservative. Uh, wasn't really all that fundamentalist until we got a new pastor when I was in high school. Uh, then he sort of catalyzed the direction that the church was going and just made it veer hard right. Um, one of his pet topics was young earth creationism and talking about how important it is for Christians to be young earth creationists. Um, and like around that around that same time, you know, like I was. Uh, going to a Christian high school, um, and the Christian the this high school that I went to, um, you know, we have to take the Bible or religion classes like one semester every year. Um, but what? But so the experience that I had in this Christian high school seems to be rather different from like a lot of uh, Christian schools. Um, especially like Protestant ones, because this one was rather not fundamentalist. Uh, and so, you know, when we had the, um, the unit on the theology of creation, uh, our Bible teachers said that there's like a variety of different ways to interpret Genesis one. Um, all of them have, you know, reasons that people think that it should be interpreted that way. Um, and if you hold to these views that could allow for the earth to be billions of years old and it could allow for evolution. Um, so just having like that sort of freedom to uh, to like think for myself um, and, you know, do 
do research, think for myself, come to my own conclusion. Um, so that was a nice contrast to uh, to my home church at that time. And um, so then, you know, I, I had that choice whether I could like follow my pastor or follow my Bible teacher. And I just sort of end, ended up deciding to follow my Bible teacher. Because um, I mean, I'm a very inquisitive mind. I like learning. Um, I like asking questions. So but that was this sort of, um, you know, just intuitive choice for me, I guess. Uh, and then I also, like around the same time, I like had some really good experiences helping out with um, some youth camps. So then I, I thought that, um, you know, studying youth ministry, well, studying theology, specifically youth ministry would be a good fit for me. Um, and so I, I went to like a small uh, reformed, small Christian reformed school to study uh, youth ministry there. And even though I didn't consider myself reformed, uh, I didn't know what I considered myself, but I uh, knew I wasn't reformed. Um, like the professors were, you know, pretty ecumenical. They didn't, they weren't heavy handed in their reformed doctrine at all. They didn't expect you to agree with them. They just, all they cared about was um, how well your, your arguments were in, you know, whatever papers or presentations you wanted to make. <clears throat> Um, and so because of the, the freedom that uh, my professors offered me, like, um, that just encouraged me to uh, ask some questions and reconsider what I believed about a number of things. Um, so like, you know, I rethought the atonement, I rethought, um, like the, the age of the earth, I rethought, um, you know, I mean, obviously the nature of hell, um, considering my uh, Instagram page's name. <clears throat> I rethought um, the nature of God um, and, and God's character. I rethought like what it means for the Bible to be inspired, like all sorts of, all sorts of different things. Um, and then while I was doing that research, like uh, God being nonviolent was like such an important um part in in that research of mine that I um and like us emulating God's nonviolence I became really attracted toward the the Anabaptist tradition um and so that toward the end of my college career I um uh, I like started identifying as such and out of college I attended a Mennonite church for a little bit <laughs> um and then I, I started working at a, like freshly out of college, I started working at a residential health, uh, residential treatment facility for teenagers uh, that were struggling with either uh, substance abuse or uh, mood disorders, mental health disorders, behavioral issues, all sorts of, <clears throat> all sorts of different issues. Um, and parents would send them there for a few months, uh, get therapy, go to school. Um, and and hopefully um with all the sort of treatment that they get there like the 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 kids behavior would improve um or their mental health would improve or at least they would learn how to cope with whatever they're going through um and then there were just a few factors at that time um uh, that i realized i needed um 
something else, something besides like just an Anabaptist church. Um, I need something more liturgical. Um, and I also needed a church that was uh, queer friendly. And the reason for that is because um, a disproportionately high number of kids at that uh, treatment facility were LGBTQ in some way. And you could like, and because it's a, a Christian facility, like all the parents of the kids are Christian and like want to send them to this facility. And you could see like, like firsthand just the, the damage that uh, non-affirming theology has on these kids. And since we're called to, to love everybody, um, that means that we do not want them to end up in a place like this because that means that there's something wrong. Um, like there's some sort of trauma, whether it be, um, you know, physical or, or sexual trauma or uh, religious, spiritual traumas, anything like that. Um, and so we, we don't want end up people to end up in a place like this, even though they may have to. And in order to make sure that queer people don't end up in a facility like this is to be affirming of them. Wow. Um, that is pretty wild. So like, um, I'm curious to hear your journey around that because, um, uh, it, I find this to be a common, um, theme that there's something about proximity, right? Yeah. Proximity creates empathy and then empathy, you start to, you start to see people and really feel for them, you know, in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is it it is so complicated though and in diff, and a difficult topic regardless you know but but i it is really sad actually to think you know the majority you were saying like the majority of people there or uh, just, uh, not, just not many not majority just compared to the general population okay, of, yeah. like, a lot higher mm -hmm. there's a higher rate of um mental health issues well not mental health issues per se but like mental health struggles and um suicide i'd imagine and yeah especially it is um difficult to imagine like as a growing up in a conservative christian household like nobody i don't think anybody prepares you for that as a parent you know if, if you were if you grew up as a if you were a conservative parent you know how do you even deal with that and it i feel like most people who are conservative christians struggle if their child is either gay or some sort of non-binary um it is it is very it's you know it's very interesting but um i'm curious like your journey with that did you always feel like um kind of leaning towards that affirming side or um i mean i i tend to be like i mean i'm looking back growing up like i mean i've always tended to be like a, a bit uh like gracious in my temperament um and so even though i wasn't always affirming like i wasn't a jerk about it <clears throat> um but i mean there were there were like a, a few factors like sort of all happened around the same time that um made that like sort of pushed me to be affirming um so there was that, and then also around the same time, like um, there was this lawsuit that was getting started with these um, 
students with from these different uh, religious uh, colleges and seminaries and universities where they sued the Department of Education because the Department of Education was funding these schools um, and these schools were allowed to discriminate against queer people. Excuse me. And, um, and so these students are like, hey, um, you can't fund these schools because they're uh, discriminating against us like that, like that uh, should not be allowed. And then I, I saw that um, one of the, the school that I went to was mentioned in that lawsuit. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I read a couple of the students' testimonies about their experience at my school. And I'm like, um, you know, where, where uh, professors would tell them in class that they're going to hell um, and a number of other things. Um, so I'm like, so that, and then also, you know, the experience that I've had with the kids at that mental health facility. Uh, and then also, you know, just doing some, some reading about from, um, from uh, queer affirming theologians. Um, like one book was uh, God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. <clears throat> uh, and all three of those things were like happening at the same time. So it was just like a, a perfect storm of, um, of reasons that, of the factors that sort of pushed me to be affirming. Um, and, and when people have told me bef before that like getting to know gay people or other queer people uh, push them to be affirming, I always thought in the back of my mind, like, oh, you, you liberal, like what about the Bible? Um, but then it happened to me, I'm like, oh, oh that makes sense now. Um, so yeah, so I, I wanted a denomination that was liturgical and a denomination that was queer affirming. So that would really just um, push me in the direction of either Evangelical Lutherans of America um, or the Episcopal Church. And, um, and there's just something that I appreciated about the, the breadth and the depth of the Anglican tradition um, that made me go in that direction. So I went with the Episcopal Church. Uh, so that's sort of my journey from um, like evangelicalism to the Anabaptist tradition to the Episcopal Church. Wow. Now, I'm curious, like on a personal level, you know, um, being a, a person of faith, it just seems, you know, I, I often wonder this, like, um, well, I, I'm often thinking about experiences, right? And like how experiences form people and and that's why I say, you know, experiences, whether they're like, um, what would I, what was the word I was saying? Um, mystical or mundane, you know, and, and those mundane experiences could just be like, just encountering, um, like, like your example was encountering um, gay people who struggle with mental health issues in that facility. Um, but like, I was curious if there's any like mystical experiences that you've that you had growing up or throughout your spiritual journey um, that have kind of helped you remain in the faith in that way. Uh, just curious. <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm, I haven't really had that many mystical experiences. I can't really think of any off the top of my head. 
Um, but I mean, um, or even not even mystical, but even like just what, why are you, why would you even consider yourself a Christian today? You know what I mean? Why do you put your faith in Jesus? You know, do you feel like there's something that you've found legit, like some sort of legitimate experience that you've had? Um, or not legitimate. I don't want to say any experiences are not legitimate. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. And if anything comes to mind, I'm just curious. Yeah. Like when did you first experience faith? I guess you know. Well, yeah. Um, so in sort of like late high school, early college, like I was um, like really invested into apologetics. Um, you know, like arguments for God, arguments for the Bible's reliability, arguments for the resurrection of Jesus and all that, <clears throat> all that sort of stuff. Um, but then, you know, as I, as I aged a little bit, um, uh, I, I realized that there's, you know, that there's more to Christianity than just its truth. Um, so like in the um, in the classical theist, theist tradition, um, like there are the three transcendentals and they are goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, and all of those three transcendentals um, find their source in God because God is the um, God is the source for all those things because He is all of those things. Um, and and what what I noticed uh, with the help of one of my professors um, is that like yes we can focus on like we can talk about the truth of Christianity, um, but we also should be talking about the beauty of Christianity. Um, and he he even wrote a book about the the role of beauty in apologetics, um, or in the the role of beauty in. Uh, the defense of the Christian faith and how we can live beautifully as Christians. Um, and when you look at the at the narrative, the like grand narrative that this uh, religion of Christianity tells, and uh, particularly the story of Jesus, um, I would say that it is utterly beautiful. And um, for me personally, I I can't really. Find more beautiful alternative than the story of Christianity. Yeah, I mean, that's enough said, isn't it? I guess, yeah. Um, that's a really good point about beauty, too. I was, um, Brian Zond has written a book about beauty, too, and and it is, it, he points out, like, it's one of those, of those three, the, the good, the beautiful, and the true, it's the least it's the one that we pay the least attention to because we're always thinking about um what is true right and we have like our apologetics we have our our truth claims you know that are or even philosophical claims and then what is good you know we have our christian ethics um especially i mean obviously we have the ethics that at least um work to our advantage uh, for the most part i mean a lot of times we ignore the the christian ethics of charity and taking care of the poor and um the needy but at the same time there are i mean a lot of the the reason why we even 
care about that in our society today is because of Christians who started orphanages and schools and whatnot and <clears throat> hospitals, etc. But um, yeah, like the beautiful. Uh, what is beauty? And and it's really interesting, isn't it? Because like, um, you know, we're both we both grew up in evangelicalism. And what is evangelicalism like? It's it's tradition around beauty. Well, they usually keep the walls plain in their churches, right? So it's like they don't want you to get distracted with uh, walls. Um, so there's no like iconography. There's no statues in Protestantism. Um, there's really not even any. There's really not many. Um, I don't know, sacramental practices. I mean, obviously, Episcopal is different, right? So that's cool. I'd love to visit a, an Episcopal church or an Anglican church um, to get kind of have see that what that experience is like. But um, what is beautiful? Um, not not just like in a visual aspect, but even just like um there are even ideas that are beautiful, right? Like the whole idea of laying down your life for another person. Um, agape love is beautiful. You know, um, the way that Jesus treated women is beautiful. I think there's a lot of good beauty there. But then even like in, in our practice, you know, when we look at even Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, man, they got iconography and statues and they they put beauty um right in front of you so that it it almost it centers you towards christ it's really cool mm -hmm. but like um yeah it's interesting I'm, I'm curious to hear more about what what um what is it about beauty that draws uh well so i mean i, ju I just think that like the, the the human heart is is drawn to beauty um and and when i look at the the uh, like the grand narrative of Christianity from God creating the world out of love, um, like God, God is God and was fully satisfied in God's self for creation, uh, and did not need to create in order to, I don't know, become some better version of God, uh, and so the only reason that God created was out of love. <clears throat> Um, and when us humans sinned, um, and turned away from God, um, I mean, God's response to that, I mean, God was always going to incarnate himself as, as Jesus. Um, but a response to that is the incarnation. So God entered into our, um, into the human condition, um, in an act of radical solidarity with us um, uh, to to befriend us and to heal us um, and to bring us back to himself um, through his life. And then also his, his death and resurrection, uh, God shows us that not even death can separate us from the love of God, as Paul says. Um, and like especially if you hold to like the um, the traditionally like orthodox um, view of the resurrection called the harrowing of hell, where Jesus goes to hell and liberates people from hell. Um, and in, and my favorite orthodox icon is the one of the resurrection um, because you have Jesus ascending from the grave 
taking Adam and Eve with him, representing all of humanity, um, trampling down the doors of Hades um, with, you know, some like dark figure being bound um, that is Satan. Um, and I mean, it, it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful image um, that, yeah, that, and visu- I think that, that visually represents uh, what the resurrection is all about i know exactly which one you're talking about that one's really cool and it, there's even like these uh locks or something that are on the ground like the locks of hell are like all and like chains are everywhere and yeah there's jesus there's adam and eve he's pulling them up out of the grave i think that actually might be the visual for your 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 instagram isn't it don't you have like an interpretation of that uh i i have some i uh yeah that it's a the white some, one yeah it's it's a version of it it's not the exactly the one i described yeah it is a version of it mm-hmm. it's like someone re uh made it just reinterpreted it maybe or just yeah redid it it's cool yeah and, and it's funny like um when you have that whole concept of jesus going down into hades and um in the orthodox thing is john christosom wrote that um it the taste of jesus in the belly of hell embittered it so it you know, like made it want to it made it sick it made it made death sick and death had to puke him out i love that imagery like like a giant beast um and then the idea of him then um while he's down there uh freeing people um and you know i always found it weird in matthew i feel like we don't talk about this very much but in matthew he or was it matthew i believe yeah in matthew he accounts of uh at the after the resurrection people actually coming up out of their graves um and i wonder if like i wonder if there's any other stories about that like uh that were passed down because it's just it's like i think it's the only place it's ever mentioned that other people resurrected with jesus and it would make sense if those were the people that he brought out out of Hades, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, <laughs> and then all, also in uh, in the uh, in the Nicene Creed, uh, like there's there's one phrase uh, where it says that Jesus descended into hell, or descended to the dead, or descended to the Hades. Um, and you know, I I heard growing up that that, that like line in the creed isn't accurate. Um, or or is wrong because you know um, Jesus paid the penalty once and for all on the cross, and so there's no reason for him to go to hell uh, to pay our debt even more. <clears throat> uh, but that's like framing it totally wrong because Jesus didn't go to hell to pay our our debt of sin even further. Jesus went to hell to liberate the people who were in there. <clears throat> um, so yeah, and then I mean another um beautiful part of, of the grand story of christianity is if you're a universalist that there is nothing that god will not do to ensure that all of his creatures are saved um and in, in fact that book that i told you about that my professor had written uh, about the beauty of christianity he was not a universalist himself um but he he uses two authors as like case studies, and these authors um, are novelists that sort of explore the um, 
like people's lives, like um, like Christians' lives, and just how how beautiful they are in in these novels. Uh, and the two authors that he uses as case studies, one is George MacDonald, and the other is Marilyn Robinson, both of whom are universalists. And I don't think that's a coincidence that the two authors that he uses to illustrate um, a beautiful Christian faith both happen to be universalists and believe that God will redeem um, every human that God created. Wow, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I recognize George McDonald, of course, but I was curious, who was the woman? Uh, Marilyn Robinson. Uh, she's she's still alive. Um, probably her most well-known book is Gilead. Um, I that sounds familiar. I think she's I think she's a, a, either like a congregationalist or a, a Quaker or something. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's super cool. <clears throat> yeah, beauty. Oh, that That is um, probably the whole crux of the matter is like, because um, right now, like in, in our temporal existence, um, it's not always beautiful. So it would be a shame if in the end, at the consummation of all things, um, it wouldn't be the most beautiful picture it could possibly be. You know what I mean? <laughs> it would be a shame if if uh, there were still loose ends. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think um, like doesn't make logical sense uh, with, with eternal hell because um, what is eternal hell? Well, it is a place you go because of sinning and the, that sin you do is rejecting God. And so it would be weird for God to allow people to go on sinning eternally by rejecting God. If rejecting God is the sin, then, then God's okay with having sin exist eternally. It doesn't really make any sense. Right. Or, or if, um, or if hell is like rather God rejecting us because we rejected him, mm. um, then that means that, god's love is conditional yeah um oh whether and i think like the one of the most radical doctrines in christianity is that of god's unconditional love um because that means that god's unconditional love is not conditioned by his own will um as some some calvinists believe um his love is not conditioned upon our actions his can his love is not conditioned upon us being alive and that after we die um he does not love us or some of us anymore um like all of those things would mean that god's love is conditional yeah that's a good point and i always struggled um there was there was a like two-year period i went through like my calvinist phase where i was like and and the reason why is because I think number one, what happened was I stumbled upon the doctrine of limited atonement. And I was like, what? That's a thing? I, I didn't even know that was a thing. You know, I didn't know about the five doctrines of grace. Um, and I pretty much grew up subconsciously Armenian, like meaning like everybody has the chance and God died for all people. Um, but when I came across that, when I studied deeper into it, I'm like, oh, actually a lot of, a lot of theologians I respect, like John Piper and John MacArthur and Alistair Begg and 
among others, you know, are actually Calvinists. So I'm like, I guess it would be right for me to be a Calvinist, right? Um, and also it just made, um, it made a uh, logical sense to me that like, oh, I guess, um, you know, why is it that I have faith, but other people don't have faith? Well, maybe it's because I'm the elect and other people aren't, you know, and it just made logical sense. But practically on the ground level, um, I don't see how it's a practical theology because what about like can you say god loves everyone you can't you know that and that's really disturbing because then it's like is that a god you would even want to be with you know <laughs> so a god you'd even want to spend time with a god who doesn't love everyone and then oh if god doesn't love everyone does that mean i don't have to love everyone too like am i supposed to imitate god uh there's all sorts of logical issues there and practical barriers that end up that ended up leading me down this road and uh among other things you know um yeah and and that reminds me of a, a quote i think it's in david bentley Hart's book that all shall be saved um or maybe it's somewhere else um where he says that uh, um you know if infernalism is for us to be more merciful than he is um because like we we're supposed to love everyone, um, like like God calls us to love everyone. God calls us to be merciful to everyone and to want everyone to be saved. Um, but if infernalism or eternal conscious torment is true, then God either does not love everyone or is not merciful to everyone or does not want everyone to be saved. And is this calling us to a higher standard than God has for himself? Yeah, I mean, the, it's the real practical implications. I remember coming across that quote as well. Um, and David Bentley Hart was definitely one of the one of the ones that brought it this all to my mind because I'm just perusing YouTube as a I don't know, and like I said, I couldn't think of I couldn't come up with any other logical under logical way to understand why some people have faith and why some people don't why why not everyone is saved you know um and so like the the concept of god's sovereignty like if god isn't sovereign over all things then he's not god right i mean um that's what i think rc rc sproul says in the american gospel i remember um hearing him say if god isn't sovereign for for one minute then he's not god and that stuck with me. I was like, oh yeah, you're right. You know, he's sovereign over all things and he, he chooses who he chooses, you know, and the rest is up, up in the air. You know, we don't really know. Um, but, but I remember hearing David Bentley Hart in his lecture and being like, wait a minute, this guy's, this guy's whack. He doesn't make any sense. But, but then it, I had to go back and be like, and actually listen. And then, um, and then as I'm listening, I'm like, you know what? I kind of hope this is true, you know, and that was the whole beauty thing again. And, and this was, this was in the midst of like late 2020 when, um, after going through all the trauma of the pandemic and the political season, having COVID, all the stress of everything, just, it was, that was a really stressful year. And I remember just at the end of the year, just being rattled and, um, beaten and torn and, uh, feeling really um, worn down, almost PTSD. And it actually, um, 
was really refreshing to then just entertain. Well, what if what if David Bentley Hart's not wrong? And then, of course, you come across other people like Peter Hyatt and um, Brad Jerzak, um, amongst many others, you know. And then you go back in time, you're like, oh, Gregory of Nyssa, Origin, you got George McDonald, you know, you got all sorts of cool people. Um, and and it, it's, it is a more beautiful picture, but but it took some time to, it takes time to um, shed the old picture of, of who God is and what, what God wants, you know, that's, that's a hard, that was a, that was a difficult process to shed that, um, to accept the fact that I might've been wrong, you know, and what I was taught might've been wrong or, and I still leave myself humble enough to say, you know, I'm not saying I, I understand this completely. And I'm not saying that I can even know what is going to happen in the age to come, you know, but, but what I do know is that Jesus is beautiful and this would be a beautiful outcome, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and even though like, it's, um, like quite a bit different, like from what I grew up with or what I grew up believing, um, and how there are, you know, a lot of people that are still infernalists or still hold to a country eternal conscious torment. Um, like, I mean, I can understand why they hold to those things because either they think they have to believe them or, um, it's just like part of the way that they've been conditioned to read the Bible. Um, like also psychologically, it's just a lot easier to believe that because then you have like you know certainty um and you don't have to worry about um you know throwing in possible mistranslations or you know conflicting texts at all um you don't have to worry about um you know people believing differently than you you can just um it's it's just really convenient and i don't mean that like a derogatory sense it's just, it's just psychologically um, um it, it's just psychologically easy psychologically uh, comforting to just have like that sort of um uh certainty and <clears throat> yeah and and just throwing in you know like i said possible mistranslations other ways of reading the text um reading people who have wildly different opinions like all of that just throws a lot of uncertainty into the mix and then that's just psychologically confusing and then also there's the the added psychological pressure pressure of admitting that you were wrong before um which we as humans are not um so good at doing so not to mention some people would lose their jobs for having yeah. these these kind of ideas you know some people who are ministers they have to sign a confession of faith that might some confession of faiths even have like you must believe in eternal conscious torment, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is a wild thing to think because you know the Nicene Creed doesn't have anything about eternal conscious torment in there. It doesn't even the only mention of hell is Jesus going down to hell, you know, too. So it's kind yeah. of fascinating. Of course, I mean there's a there's a difference between I don't know, it, it is fascinating in your studies. Um, 
how would you differentiate your understanding of Hades versus like hell, you know, or the lake of fire or Gehenna? Do you think Gehenna and the lake of fire are the same thing? You know, I don't, I don't even know. I feel uh, like those things all get construed into one thing, but they mean different things. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, yeah. So, um, I mean, all of those different words like Sheol, Hades, uh, Gehenna, Tartarus, um, like all of those, um, at least in like more conservative translations tend to be translated as hell. Um, even though all of them mean different things, um, like Tartarus was um, like a prison for, for spiritual beings. Um, Hades and Sheol was like a, just a place people go when they die uh, it wasn't like hell it was just the sort of uh, just sort of like a nebulous place that it wasn't happy um, but it wasn't torturous either um, and then I mean Gehenna probably has the most contention um, just because people debate um, like what Jesus meant by Gehenna what uh, different pictures of what Gehenna was during second temple Judaism all that sort of stuff and i haven't looked into it enough to know like definitively what jesus's idea of gehenna was when he talked about it um but it probably wasn't like this um you know medieval torture chamber uh, that we have in our, our popular culture imagination of what hell is um and i don't even, i don't even really like using the word hell just because of all the the cultural and theological baggage that has accrued over the centuries um and i mean ditto with purgatory um but those are like the most two common words uh, to use for like some bad place you go when you die so i don't so even though there's a lot of baggage around those terms and I don't agree with all the baggage, like I feel like I have to use those terms because that's what everyone else uses. Even though what I mean by hell or purgatory is not what most other people mean by either of those terms. So, yeah. I often wonder if, because I think if if any Catholic is honest, if you go back to the early church, early church fathers, there's nothing about purgatory. You know what I mean? The New Testament, there's nothing about purgatory. But I often wonder if it was a misunderstanding of actual early church father universalists. And they were misunderstanding it and reinterpreting it as purgatory. You know what I mean? Like, because if you read Gregory of Nyssa, he talks about a fire that refines. And I often wonder if that's what he that's what mm -hmm. um ended up getting misinterpreted and misconstrued as and, and developed into the whole concept of purgatory as a place of refinement before being able to go into heaven really interesting yeah curious to hear um i'd have to ask a, a catholic you know and kind of get deeper into that the weeds of like where did this uh doctrine even develop because it is I, fascinating yeah what were you saying i i think there's like some support of it in um like one of the uh, deuterocanonical books, uh, like one of the intertestamental books. Um, oh, I, ha yeah. I haven't really read read those. Um, I'd like to read them, but I just haven't gotten around to it. I like think the Maccabees or something? Or? It might be one of the Maccabees. Um, 
I'm not yeah. sure, but I, I'm pretty sure there is some support um, in one of those uh, deuterocanonical books. Uh, we have the uh, the epistle. Is it the epistle of no the apocalypse of Peter? Um, I wonder if did the Catholics read the, the apocalypse of Peter? That's another uh, one of those apocryphal books that um, are often rejected by Protestants, and I'm not sure if they're even accepted by any other um branch of christianity but basically um bart ehrman which i'm sure you're familiar with bart ehrman he's not a christian he's a atheist but biblical scholar and um he pointed out that his interpretation just from the apocalypse of peter was actually universalist that there that hell was judgment but it was also um some sort of refining process and when you read it if you ever read it read the apocalypse of peter it's, it sounds a lot like dante's inferno actually i think i think dante got some of his cues from that fascinatingly enough but yeah coming back to your story um so tell me about the episcopal church how how did you decide to settle there uh yeah so i i mean so i i had mentioned that um I wanted a denomination that was liturgical and a denomination that was, um, you know, LGBTQ friendly. Um, but so the reason I wanted um, a more liturgical church is because I had read this book by this professor of psychology at uh, Christian, um, oh, Christian Abilene University, I think, Abilene Christian University. Um, his name is Richard Beck, um, and he's written and book really good. Uh, he was a really good blog called Experimental Theology. Um, but one of his books that he wrote uh, is called Hunting Magic Eels, uh, which has a, a really great backstory. Um, but so basically, his book is about um like we in a sort of disenchanted society so a society where we it's easy not to feel god or feel any like spiritual dimensions even if we were to believe in them um and so in his book he sort of lists like a few different traditions of christianity um that all can help uh like re-enchant uh, one's faith or you know one's one's christianity and so there's the like you know there's a, the pentecostal tradition um and the, there's a few other traditions and then one of them is like a liturgical tradition um i'm pointing out um you know just like the um one of the main emphases that he has is the, the sacramentality of it. The sacrament being a, uh, an outward and visible and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And so just as Jesus became like fully human, uh, he, Jesus didn't just appear to be human, like Jesus was fully human and entered into uh, materiality. And so materiality is not a bad thing. Um, unlike, you know, some, unlike some, like what some evangelicals may say, 
um, and God can certainly work through uh, material things and, and visible things. Um, and the, the two most common sacraments, um, like the two most commonly witnessed sacraments in the Episcopal Church, and then also, you know, Catholic, Orthodox, and, you know, any other denomination, like the two most common things that we, um, that us, Episcop us Episcopalians call sacraments would be uh, baptism and the Eucharist or, or uh, Holy Communion. Um, because even though those things are just um, bread and wine or grape juice and water, uh, they are the signs of God's presence to us. Um, and so, like when it comes to the Eucharist or Holy Communion, uh, the, the bread and the wine, um, like God becomes actually present in that. Um, Catholics like try to parse out like exactly when the the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus. Um, but us Episcopalians um, tend to side with the Orthodox in this one. Like we're we don't know when it uh, becomes the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, like we're not going to try to parse it out because that's not the point. Uh, the point is just that it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. Um, and then also baptism, um, like baptism is, yes, it is a, it is water and it is a, a, a visible sign, but it, it, that sign reveals the, or, um, so God works through that water, um, as a means of grace, uh, to us. And just sort of like that, that sacramentality, that sort of grittiness, um, of God working through material things um, can help, you know, re-enchant Christianity. And then also with the liturgical traditions, like repeating the same prayers every week um, or similar prayers every week and doing that on a routinely basis. Um, like we, ha we have this phrase um, in the Episcopal Church, I don't know if it's in other liturgical traditions, um, but it's lex orandi, lex credendi, uh, which translates from Latin as the law of prayer is the law of belief. Uh, because what we pray over time shapes what we believe and thus shapes like what we do and how we act. Um, and so the sacramentality and then also the ritual, um, like we made me want to start attending an Episcopal church. And then once I started, I just couldn't stop. That's really cool. Um, yeah, and you know what's funny is like, as I, I honestly have been feeling more and more the same way about the sacraments um, and about liturgy, I, I, this is probably something that a lot of people disagree with, but it feels like the way evangelical churches are often run, you know, what is the liturgy? And the liturgy means the work of the people or the way that the service is set up. What is the liturgy? The liturgy is you show up, um, 
you sit in chairs, but then you all stand and you sing like a concert style singing. Mm -hmm. And then you give an offering. And then uh, someone preaches for a half hour to an hour. And then you all go home. And what that sounds to me like is basically, it sounds like more of an outreach than it does an actual just like actual church. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't sound, it doesn't, it's not, ter- it's not church. You know what I mean? Um, I think church um, in the early church, like imagine explain like someone from the early church, like the first century going to an evangelical church, they'd be like, what is going on? Like, and and let's say they could understand the language. Obviously there'd, there'd be some cultural issues there, but that's kind of what happens, right? When, when Americans, us Americans, when we go to a church that's more liturgical when an evangelical person goes to a liturgical church they're confused and they're also cynical i find because i know that because i I myself was very cynical whenever i visited the catholic church or really the only um liturgical churches i've really ever experienced were catholic churches that's what fascinates me about the episcopal and anglican too but yeah um there's something there's something about liturgy and sacrament that is centering and and it really um, brings you it centers you on jesus it centers you on the gospel story um there's actual physical beauty that that can like um kind of transport you in that way especially if noticed that with iconography or um yeah so what what is it specifically about the sacraments that you that really draw you in like Um, what was that? Like, I'm I'm curious if you personally, like, what what do you feel like you're getting out of the sacrament that you just didn't get before? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's not just the sacrament; like, it, it's the whole the whole liturgy for me, and um, and even stuff that's not in the liturgy itself, but like all the symbolism that you can see in the Episcopal Church. Um, so like the altar is front and center um and it's in front of everybody and then the the little tabernacle which is a little box above the altar um that we keep um the host in that's like a a bread wafer that's already been um, been sanctified so it's so jesus is all already present there um like that is front and center um and then the um like the uh, the lectern, which is like where where people read Bible stories from uh, during the liturgy or the pulpit. Like those are off to the side. Um, and the only time when you know Bible story is not read from the lectern is when you're reading one of the gospels. And when you're reading one of the gospels, then it's again front and center. Or and sometimes um, the deacon or the priest goes to the goes down the aisle to the middle of the uh, of the congregation and reads it in the midst of the people so even though you know there's um like nobody's drawing attention to the fact that like the gospel is uh, is centered and the altar and the tabernacle are front and center um it's just, like nobody 
calls attention to it, but just the fact that, you know, Jesus is front and center. Um, even more so, like, Jesus Jesus is front and center, um, um, and, like, not the pastor. The pastor's not front and center. He's just, um, he's just there sort of leading the people um, in worship together. Um, so that that's one thing I, I really like. Um, and then, you know, the, the sacrament of, of Eucharist and just every single time you go to church, you receive the body and blood of Christ. Um, you know, there, there's just something about it that feels nourishing um, that I, I can't really describe to, to anyone who, you know, hasn't been to some sort of liturgical service. Um, and and, uh, and another thing is, you know, liturgical services, you tend not to bring your Bibles with you to, to the service, which may scare a lot of evangelicals. Um, but the, uh, the participation that everyone does together, like we all confess our sins together, we all recite, recite the creed, we all pray the prayers, we all kneel, we all stand, we all sing together. Um, like that's a lot more significant to me than just bringing my Bible and following along the sermon that the uh, that the pastor is preaching. Um, like especially with one of our prayers um, that some churches, that some Episcopal churches do before we have Eucharist together. Um, it's called the the prayer of humble access um, in the Episcopal Church, and it's. Uh, let me see if I can find the exact uh, exact words because it is it's very good, especially when you like recite it week after week after week, and it just forms you. Uh, it just forms yeah, you. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Uh, so we do not presume to come to this your table. O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord uh, whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, uh, that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. Um, and so just the the part of that that I appreciated, like saying that repetitively, like week after week after week, um, is that it helped uh, shape my view of the character of God. Um, because, um, because, you know, a, a lot of people like to ask, like, are we deserving God's love? Um, some people will say yes, some people will say no. Um, I don't, I'm not a fan of that question because that question starts from a human perspective, um, not from God's perspective. Like whether or not we deserve God's love is irrelevant because God loves us. It, it doesn't matter if we deserve it or not. Like that should, that's just who God is. Um, and it's not that God just happens to be that way either. Like that's the very essence 
of who God is. Um, and so just reciting that prayer uh, congregationally week after week after week uh, is just a powerful reminder of just the, the just how grandly merciful God is. Um, and then it, it like, especially since it's prayed right before the Eucharist where you all partake in the Eucharist together um, and, um, you know, eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ and are reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. Um, it, it's just a very powerful uh, prayer to do week after week, immediately followed by uh, weekly Eucharist. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And um, that's really cool, though, what what was really eye-opening to me, because obviously, and I'm sure you're well aware, like growing up in most evangelical churches, we don't have, we have Eucharist or the communion like once a month. Some churches do it once a quarter. Like that's as little, that's as few as four times a year. It could be as few as 12 times a year. And the way you're speaking about it, it's so life-giving to participate in the body in, of the church and to take the Eucharist together, to center ourselves around Jesus, um, even as a Protestant, you know what I mean? <laughs> Especially as a Protestant, because I mean, those, the high church was, is the OG Protestants, you know, and, and then Protestantism formed, uh, morphed into this, this whole other thing, which is really disheartening, you know, um, especially in the low church like um but that's really beautiful it's really cool because um it's not like you have to go that far back um you don't have to travel that far to get that kind of liturgical sacramental experience where you where you have a service and that's that's kind of the point i was making before it's like what is the liturgy in evangelical churches well if you ask like an evangelical person like why do you go to church they'll usually say like like the climax of the whole thing is the preaching, right? It's the homily. It's listening to the word, listening. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a ginormous conference Bible study, Ted talk kind of style thing. Um, but if you ask someone who's in the more liturgical, um, and, and I'm not putting down Bible study, obviously that's important, but if you ask someone in more liturgical sacramental, um, traditions, you ask them, why do you go to church? You go, to take communion basically like the mass um in in catholicism the mass literally means it, it it's a translation of the word bread mass <laughs> it's um it's all about the uh taking communion and if you ask ask an eastern orthodox person um why do you go to church you go to church to take the eucharist um it's just interesting how the priorities and what church is and i don't mean what the church is like the body of christ um is but like what the actual experience um of church is is very has become morphed into something very different than um what it used to be in a lot of ways so it's 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 good to hear someone else that kind of can concur with that experience but that's really neat and then um i'm curious like you were looking for a church that's more lgbt affirming and, and i know like the episcopal church they're kind of like all over the place with this right now but um 
for the most part, most most Episcopal churches I've seen have the rainbow flag indicating their support. And and what does that look like practically? Like, does it really have a big difference in the life of the church or um, um, what it looks like? Uh, what what the liturgy is like? Like, it doesn't really. That's the thing. It's like these the high church still preserves even if they're progressive in some cases they still preserve and conserve the liturgy and and the sacrament you know um so it's really fascinating i was just curious like what is it like going to a, a lgbtq affirming episcopal church like does it make a difference does, does it really feel like you're it's lgbt affirming or is it like i'm just curious what that's like yeah um well in the in the episcopal church like across the board tends to be uh pretty affirming like there may be you know a, a handful of uh, churches that aren't but for the most part like they're all pretty much um affirming um it's just like uh varies by degrees rather than um like completely disagreeing with each other um but i mean it's like like when you attend a church that's lgbtq affirming um it's just it i mean not only does is that an indication that you're like not attending a culture war church which culture war churches are just tiring to go to um because you're if you go to a culture war church, you're not hearing the gospel. Um, it's not uh, church. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you're not, not. You're not hearing the good news um, of Jesus Christ that He loves you and died for you and is making all things new. Like you're not hearing that. Um, and then you know, practically, um, you know, in, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable. Um, that how we treat the least of these is um not only a failure to love the least how we how we treat the least of these is not only how um revealing like how far we fall short of uh, of christ's love for the least of these but also how we love the least of these is how we treat christ um and and currently, like, I mean, it's pretty plain and clear to me that how uh, that LGBTQ plus people are the least of these, or, or, or at least one part um, of the least of these. And so when we, you know, say that they are fully welcome here and that they don't have to pretend to be somebody else, that they are not, when they come to our, our churches, um, then we are treating them as we would treat Christ, um, or or at least that's that's what we believe. That we we believe that by welcoming them, by affirming them, um, by saying that their identity, uh, that their sexual or gender identity, um, is how God made them, then we are. You know, welcoming and affirming Christ as they step into our doors, 
because there there is this quote by uh, John Chrysostom where he says that if you don't find Christ in the beggar, you're not going to find him in the chalice. Um, and you know, one could um, make an analogy to how you treat. Well, if you don't find Christ in queer people, you will not find Christ in the chalice. Uh, when you, you know, partake of Eucharist every week. Um, so, I mean, there, there's also that, but then also just, you know, just seeing how uh, relaxed and relieved queer people are when you tell them that they don't have to change to attend one of your services. So like back to talk about the, uh, the mental health facility that I worked at, like, um, uh, like there were a number of, of queer people that I developed a really good relationship while I was there. Um, you know, some were non-binary, some were trans, some were gay, some were, some were whatever. Um, but, um, you know, I, I had told a number of them about the, the church that I attended and it said that they could even, um, you know, come with me a, a couple times um, if they wanted to. And, and some of them took me up on that offer. And, and you know, just, just hearing the uh, the relief in one of the the trans kids' names, where they can actually um, use their trans name rather than their dead name, and just seeing the relief uh, that came with that was uh, was was great to see. Um, and then also like hearing these kids say like just how how great this church is and how they want to go back, um, and. Like they, they would not say that about most other churches that they would that they want to go back there um and then also the fact that um you know one of the episcopal churches that i've been to uh the the head rector there the head priest uh is uh, is a gay man who's married um and and there were a number of, of gay men in that parish who are in relationship with other men and just um and i mean it's that church was seemed to be like a refuge for lgbtq people and it's just beautiful to see like all of them um just like loving and supporting and appreciating one another and not having to worry about uh, condemnation from anyone because they are um you know loved and supported just as they are and they don't have to worry about, uh, you know, condemnation or bigotry or hatred um, for who they are. And they can come to the body of Christ, uh, and and you know, and, and just feel the love of Christ because of the congregation that they are in. Wow. So that is that. Are you talking about the church where you attend now? Uh. Not the one I attend now, but one I have attended mm -hmm. in the past. Yeah. I think what uh, the misconception that a lot, the reason I asked was because the mis, I think the misconception that a lot of conservative Christians would have is like, oh, though those LGBT affirming churches, like the Episcopal church, you go in there and it's just gay flags everywhere. They're just preaching about how God loves everyone, manzy pansy, blah, blah, blah. You know, just like having a pride parade in the middle of the church or something like that. I think that's what they imagine is happening. 
but I, I suspect that's not what's happening. Obviously I'm caricaturing, but like, I, that's why I was just curious, like what, what, to what degree does it feel like? Cause like you said, like, um, if you just had like a church that wasn't about the gospel, wasn't about the sacrament and it wouldn't really be church. Right. And that could be a church that's very focused on right-wing politics or um, very focused on like kind of more of a Christian nationalist direction or vibe. That's not church either, you know, but then um, I feel like likewise, some progressive churches can be so much about um, social justice or like, you know, inclusion and whatnot which I think are good things, you know, or LGBT inclusion and affirm information that it's like, it, it, it almost like ceases to become church. It's now it's, it's kind of like a community. Uh, I don't know. What do you call it? Like a, a community, like, I don't know, um, organization, you know, a community organization that's rather just humanitarian maybe that maybe that's more in like unitarian universalist churches where they kind of don't really center themselves around jesus and the gospel but i mean i was i was just curious like what what that experience is like um and and if you feel like there's there needs to be a balance you know in that way um yeah so one benefit about liturgical and like higher churches is that there is a, a structure to the services that you do not mess with. Um, so like there were, so like you always, you know, do the readings from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the gospels, you always recite the creed. Um, and like part of the reason that you recite the creed after you hear the, the sermon or the homily is just in case there are any um, perhaps unintentional errors in the sermon that you just heard, you recite the creed together as sort of a corrective for, for any of the errors that may have been said during the homily or the sermon. Um, and then also you all participate in the Eucharist together. You all participate in the confession of sin together. Uh, the priest uh, forgives everyone together. We all pray for um, for you know the good of the world together and for for suffering and and sin to cease like we do all of those things together and if a clergy uh, if a clergy person were to mess with any of that like they would get in serious trouble for messing with the liturgy um and so so that's like a, a safeguard that we have in the liturgical churches that we don't have to worry about um a clergy person, um, like you know, um, you know, talking about their pet topic to such a degree that it throws everything off kilter. Like we, we even have the the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a, a series of Bible passages that, for every Sunday and like major uh, major Holy Day, that we have specific readings from the bible on that given day and that when you give a sermon it has to be about one of those passages or at least one of those passages um and so you that's another safeguard about preventing uh priests or deacons or bishops from getting on their on their pet topic 
um, too much and throws everything off kilter. Whereas if you were to go to a, a low church evangelical church and you just, you know, have a praise band and a sermon for forty minutes, the, the pastor can talk about whatever he wants, versus he wants. Um, and so it's a lot easier for evangelical churches to be culture war churches because just the way that their church is structured it allows for that whereas in the episcopal church even though it is uh, a progressive denomination it's very difficult to mess with the the liturgy that we have mm. and throw progressive politics um, into it and make it a culture war church wow you know that's really that's really good to hear for sure and i i, I agree with you you know it is funny both i feel like both of the churches i grew up going to had some level of spiritual abuse around the pastors and one was like more direct in that like we were going to this assemblies of god church in worcester massachusetts central massachusetts where i live um and um the pastor was actually like hinting at things that my father had done and other people had done during in a sermon you know like really using the sermon as like a way to like point out people's sins and like specifically um, it was really messed up. And like my father went through a three-year depression over it, you know, it was not good. And then um, the other church we grew, we, we ended up at was a non-denominational church. So <laughs> you can imagine um, non-denominational churches doesn't really make any sense to me it's i don't understand how it's christian you know what i mean because christian churches have always been within the context of other churches right like why would why would the apostle john write a letter to the seven churches if those seven churches weren't all one body and they're just in different locations you know what i mean um it's just kind of strange so yes um this one pastor he had his own pet topics. He was obsessed with the end times, specifically like dispensational rapture theology, and then which I'm sure you're familiar with. And then um, he was also obsessed with talking about hell too. And I feel like to some degree, because he obsessed on those topics so much, I got it ingrained in my head that that's all that Christianity is about. It's Christianity is about escaping the world and not going to hell, you know, um, which is really sad. When, when you actually compare it to what the real gospel is of Jesus, you know, um, like take not even universalism, just the gospel, just as it's regularly preached um, throughout the Christian history is not what my pastor was preaching. And, and I feel like that was a form of spiritual abuse. So it is fascinating. And those churches would consider themselves conservative and they, and they'd refuse to, be LGBT um, uh, affirming and or put up rainbow flags or anything, uh, but at the same time, um, there are all there. There's no safeguards against them uh, abusing people in other ways, spiritually, mentally, or psycholog psychologically. So I mean, I guess it's really refreshing to hear that. And maybe it's like different. There's different evangelical, uh, different ep Episcopal churches that have different. Um, um, experiences you know it's funny when i talked to addison hodge's heart he 
I asked him what how he felt and how like Anglicans felt about Episcopals and they're not really that happy about Episcopals. Because <laughs> they've kind of broken off and done a lot of their own thing, even though it's very similar structure wise. Same same communion. They share communion, right? Mm -hmm. But um but it is interesting. Yeah, I mean that's really cool. Did you have any other thoughts on the Episcopal Church? Um, I think uh, no, not a not a whole lot of other uh, things. I was curious. To, I was curious to hear about um, what made you want to start a uh, a Christian Universalist meme page. <laughs> um, well, I I. It's just I saw a lot of, uh, you know, Christian meme pages out there, um, and like a lot of them were like Calvinist or evangelical, uh, or something like that. And so you know, most of them, um, you know, had had you know fairly conservative theology, um, and so I was like, okay, you, you know what, I'm just gonna start a meme page that um that talks about um you know some things that most conservative christians would probably not agree on uh or not agree with um and so um you know i i talked about you know some things that um a lot of anabaptists would agree with because i sort of you know, going back to that little um, time frame where I was Anabaptist. Um, and so, you know, one of my memes was about uh, Jesus being the word of God rather than the Bible being the word of God. Um, because, you know, that's, that's how Jesus is described in the book of Revelation, the book of John, and <laughs> uh, even the book of Hebrews, because it, I mean, it talks about how the Bible, it talks about how the word of God is a double-edged sword. Um, but then it follows up with it by calling the word of God he. Uh, you don't call the Bible he, you just call the Bible it. <clears throat> um, and so I talked about that. I talked about um, how when, when, when Christians, you know, support the death penalty, because um, you know, uh, like one of the demographics that is has the most support for the death penalty is um, American evangelicals. Uh, and so, one meme that I have is um, what evangelicals really mean when they support the death penalty, uh, or when they, you know, support uh, when they support war or, or something like that. Um, and there's this scene from Stranger Things um, where Joyce Byers, uh, the mother of the, the boy that had disappeared, talks to the uh, Dr. Brenner, the head of the uh, uh, the government department. Uh, she says, "Go to hell." Um, and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's what evangelicals actually mean when they you know support the death penalty um, because either." the person is Christian or the person is non-Christian. Um, and so either they are in support of killing a fellow, of 
of a Christian being killed or they are in favor of a non-Christian being killed. And if they believe that a non-Christian is being killed, then they believe that that person is going to hell for eternity. Um, and, you know, I, I had a couple other means, um, but then I, I wanted to switch gears, like just to universalism, because that's the, out of like all the um, things that I, I believe that you know, most conservative Christians would not subscribe to, I would say universalism is probably the, the biggest one, the one that I can talk about the most. Um, so then I started making memes like purely about universalism. Um, and I mean, I've, I've gotten quite a bit of, of pushback from it. I've got some people who are wanting to learn more about it, but just, you know, didn't quite agree with it. Um, I, I've had people who were very supportive of me and are glad that there are meme pages like mine out there as you, um, I mean, there are at least a thousand, about a thousand people who follow me. So clearly at least a thousand people like the, the content that I put up. Yeah, I was just looking at one. Um, I love the one with Thanos and he's balancing the, the knife on his finger and it's mercy and retributive justice. Justice, perfectly balanced as all things should be. <laughs> it's just yeah, so funny. Which, um, so funny. Yeah, but that meme uh, is, sort of, is sort of poking fun at how um, infernalists, um, particularly Calvinists, frame mercy and justice. Um, because the, the way that they talk about mercy, mercy and justice is they say, yes, God is loving, but God is also just, as if they're opposed to each other. Um, and when they say just, they they almost always mean retributive justice rather than restorative justice. So how can yes. uh, this person be punished? How can this person be punished uh, to pay for their sins rather than how can um, this situation be remedied and rectified? Um, you know, like I said, God is loving, but God is also just. And so in order for God to be more just, God would need to be less merciful and vice versa. So mercy and justice become a, a zero-sum game. Um, and if and there's a, a brilliant quote from George MacDonald, uh, his sermon entitled Justice, um, which uh, the listeners can find online for free. Um, he basically says, if by mercy or, or love, you mean the forgiving of sin, and by justice, you mean the punishing of sin or the non-forgiving of sin, then you have introduced into then you have introduced a schism into the very idea of god and god because he is unified whole um cannot have divisions like that and so you are introducing a division into god's very character which cannot be um and so therefore mercy and justice cannot be opposed to each other yeah i mean that that is um, it's very similar to another meme that I just came by. It said universalist. It's it's the picture of I don't know what what this guy is from. What what show is he from? Oh, I, I can't remember the show. Um 
but but the premise of the show is that this this guy tells like these three or four uh, different stories, and you have to decide which one was true. Yeah, and which well, one was made up? Or yeah, which there's one two that are true. Yeah, I, I don't. Oh, remember, there's like, two of them made up. I don't remember like yeah. how many are made up and how many are real, but you just have to decide like which ones you think are are true and which ones are false. Yeah. Um, and then like at the end of the episode, he tells you um, which stories were true and which stories were false. And yeah. in, in that picture, he says, we made that one up. Yeah, it was like, where does the Bible say that infinite sins deserve infinite punishment? Infernalists, we made it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's kind of it's kind of similar along the same lines. Like, I feel like this. And I, I feel kind of disheartened that. I've talked to many intellectual people, some intellectual people who who've said that like there's almost there's something about God that he actually needs to he needs to have somebody to punish be, um in because in order to display his justice because his justice is a part of who he is. So at that point it's like wait a minute so it's pretty arbitrary lines that you're choosing um that like then you know those who do go to hell um ultimately god wants them there right he would desire them to be there in order for him to display his justice by way of his nature because he's because god is god is just a lesser god to his attributes apparently <laughs> you know what i mean i'm saying that facetiously but that that's what i find awesome often happens is god becomes a lesser god god god's god is his attributes and his nature um and he he's almost like so he's so divinely simple that um he's just a mechanical um thing of like plus or minus action non-action you know um um uh, so it's like <laughs> yeah why does god have to why does an infinite punishment have to be for for finite um sin you know it doesn't really make any sense and i think one of the big things that has helped me and as this isn't even i don't even think this is only universalists who believe this in fact there are many universalists who kind of have essentially a very fundamentalist framework that they work by they still believe in like that hell is a bad place meaning like it's they still those they still think of it in very like black and white terms like like in the beginning god created heavens and the earth and he created hell as if as if that's a thing um obviously in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So there's some issues there. But before I go into my far of a tangent, what was I saying? I was saying, um, oh, the whole concept of, you know, sin is a punishment in itself. You know, God doesn't need to punish sin as if it's like this arbitrary, um, like, like an arbitrary penalty. It Sin is more like it's the consequences of your actions. Like, um, like one one example I've heard is a lot of people, a lot of times people think of sin as like uh, the punishment of sin is that the fine that you get for getting caught, like for a speeding ticket and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But the way we really should see sin is sin is the consequences of driving down a slippery hill and, um, you know, slamming into into the bridge, you know, um, when you're going around the bend. The sin is the sin led to death right it led to um 
the sin was a punishment in itself because because of its consequences. So, like, why does God need to punish you even further if your sins have already given you enough punishment? Or why does God even need to punish? You know, that it doesn't say that God needs to punish. It says that he's judge. Mm-hmm. And just and, because God is judge, like, you know, what are you saying? Yeah. Um, and, like, viewing the um, the quant- the consequences of sin as, like, um, you know, legal penalty- penalties, um, like how we view sin influences how we view the the consequences of sin. Um, and so if you view sin as like a, a legal offense against God, then obviously you're going to view the consequences of sin as um, punishment from God. Um, but if you view sin as like, um, I mean, there, there are two phrases um, that I found very helpful in, in how to uh, reframe sin. The first one is uh, the culpable disruption of God's shalom. So God's shalom is like God's perfect uh, created order and like how God, uh, like God's plan for the world and, and for creation. Um, and if you disrupt that in any way, whether it be between you and creation, you and another or you and yourself, um, because that shalom will be disrupted, like there will be fallout from that disruption. <clears throat> uh, so that, so that's uh, one one way of framing sin that I've, I've found helpful. Another one is, um, and by this author by the uh, by the name of Francis Spufford, he's a, a British writer. Um, he wrote a book called Unapologetic, and this is where I, I get it from. He said that sin is the human propensity to f things up, <clears throat> um, and I mean, I, again, it sort of plays into the same thing, but like with a little mm-hmm. bit more crass language. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, but when we when we f things up, like there's there, there is this disruption and and fallout, and we have mm-hmm. to deal with the consequences of the fallout that that we have uh, that we have put ourselves in. Um, and so if you frame sin, like the first way I described, it's like a, a sort of legal offense, then you're going to view uh, the consequences of sin as a legal punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but if you view it as a, a disruption of the goodness of creation, the goodness of mm. um, of relationships, whether it be with each other, God, the, the, um, yourself, other people, um, then the the very consequences of that is going to be the fallout from that relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I feel like it's a very Old Testament way, like Jewish understanding of it too. Like, um, you know, Paul uses the way the word hamartio, which hamartio or however, however you say it, uh, which literally means missing the mark. And growing up, I was always told that means like, oh, like you're supposed to be perfect. So you miss the mark of being perfect. That's not really what Paul's talking about. And, you know, a lot of other people have pointed this out. Um, N.T. Wright's one of my favorites who's pointed this out. And even some Orthodox folks like John Baer has talked a lot about what the gospel means for humanity because, um, you know, and this is what the early church fathers were all about. They were like, oh, the fact that Jesus um, came in flesh and bodily resurrected 
well, it means that he connected it with himself with all humanity. He was trying to restore humanity. Well, what to what? And and he right points this out a lot is that um for a certain vocation, right? And like in Genesis, the um God sets up Adam and Eve in the garden to steward it, to steward creation, to reflect the praises of creation back to God, to be the living image of God in his creation. So that's that's the target you know and so then when we sin we fall short of that target uh which is that vocation of being the image of god in creation the stewarding creation it gives you a much healthier view of creation too especially if you grew up dispensational and thought like oh god's going to destroy the earth and we're all going to live up in the clouds <laughs> so but um yeah um and even like the old testament god wasn't about like punishing specific sins like had had like an abacus and he's like counting people's sins and he's like okay but there is there does seem to be like these points where like the jew of the jewish people their their sins per se or their their shortcomings not even shortcomings but like literally their injustices um were mounting up so much that god handed them over to their enemies and that's that was the whole issue with Babylon, um, taking them over, exiling, being exiled to Babylon, being sacked, um, uh, because they weren't listening to God and in, in, in creating and in, in, in reflecting the human, the uh, the divine image in creation. Um, yeah, so that's really, that's really a good point. I mean, I like how these memes are kind of spur on some good conversation. Maybe we can look at one more as we come to an end. All right. How are you feeling? Great. Awesome. Let's see. I don't know if there's any good one, other good one. I'm sure there's lots of good ones. Unconditional love means God still loves people after dead. Hard pill to swallow. I mean, we kind of already talked about that, didn't we? Mm -hmm. That's a good one. <laughs> oh, I love this one. This is one of my favorites. I've referenced this before. James White, the one with James White and the buttons. Oh, yep. Confusing buttons. <laughs> because what did James White say? Oh, he said, he's gone on record saying that, James White has gone on record saying that Christ's death was either for, only for the elect or for all of humanity. White is right about that, but chose the wrong option. <laughs> of the two you know it's just it's so true um the whole issue of limited atonement the idea that like there's like this economical this economical function of or like numerical function of jesus and sacrifice it's just so i feel like it's such a modern way of thinking you know um and that's why you don't really see anything about limited atonement in the old testament like or in the old testament or maybe not in the old testament but i mean in the early church you like they don't really talk much about atonement being limited um yeah yeah there are uh a couple times i think uh both of them are in the the johannine epistles so the epistles of john <clears throat> um where it's explicitly denied um that the atonement was only for some people um 
so like one one passage i don't remember the the reference off the top of my head um but but the author says <clears throat> um jesus died not only for our sins but the sins of the world um and so i i i, I genuinely yeah. do not understand how how calvinists yeah. um can believe in limited atonement when the only time it is talked about in scripture it is explicitly mm -hmm. denied um and then so back to the meme uh james white has said like the only options in terms of like the efficacy of the atonement um is either calvinism or universalism mm. uh, just just based on the way that the the, uh, the atonement the uh, the grand scope of the atonement is talked about in the new testament um like it's either well it, so it's epic it's efficacious for all for all that yeah. um that christ was meant to die for um and so just the question becomes did christ intend to die for some or for all mm. um james white says that um jesus only came to die for some yeah not for all that's a hard pill to swallow that that um itself and it's funny in my last podcast i made the joke that the gospel coalition is a is like that pudding that you you put you hide the pill in to feed to feed your dog the pill <laughs> that's what it is because <laughs> they're kind of they're obviously the same direction but yeah there there's so much there isn't there um i really enjoy your memes so if if you want to follow bradley he is brady. at brady sorry not bradley brady he is at the christian universalist Proclaiming the the actual good news that God will save everyone. Also, a DBH, Brad Jerzak, and George McDonald Stan. <laughs> and the profile picture is by Ivan Ivanka, Ivanka Demchuk. Yeah, she's a Ukrainian uh, uh, artist of icons. Wow, it's really beautiful. Yeah, but it's like all It's kind of like washed out in, in white. Uh, yeah, she she has a lot of great icons. I would, I would oh, recommend yeah. checking her out for sure. I bet she's Orthodox. It sounds like it. She's probably Russian Orthodox with that name, you know. <laughs> uh, I think Ukrainian. Oh, you Ukrainian Orthodox? Same, yep. similar thing. I won't say the same thing. They'd be they'd be upset with that. But yeah, um, what else are you doing? Any any other things you're up to <laughs> these days? Um. I mean, not a whole lot. I, yeah. I, I work in campus ministry um, oh, yeah. and got back uh, from a spring break mission trip working with um, a Catholic worker nonprofit. So they um, help with the homeless population around campus. I know the Catholic worker. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so they help the, popu the homeless population around the Kansas City area, uh, give them free food, uh, give them clothes, give them nice showers awesome um, just do what they can to uh, to help the the homeless population that's awesome campus ministry that's pretty cool is that the one that can't know anything 
Um, no, like even though it's associated with the Catholic worker movement, like mm-hmm. uh, not many of the people there who work there are actually Catholics. Oh yeah, um, they're they're just really inspired by uh, by Dorothy Day. Dorothy and, Day and Peter Morin. I love the Catholic worker. I think it's really cool. They're, we have a soup kitchen here in in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, um, and I've talked to the. I'm good friends with the founder of the the soup kitchen. He's and oh man, you if you want to go back. To my some of my earlier uh, episodes, uh, Mike Boover, he was one of the co-founders of the soup, the Catholic worker here in Worcester, and um, he met Dorothy Day. Um, Peter Morin died before he was born, but but he, he met a bunch of cool people. The the Barrigans, if you're familiar with Dan and Phil Barrigan, um, he met Teek Nat Han back in the day. Super cool. Nice. But yeah, um, yeah, that's super cool um that's awesome so anyway i hope you have a great evening you as well and uh lord lord the nature of your wrath it's not an easy path but i'm willing to trust though i'm dying in the dust (laughs) 